Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is presented for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com, which really is pretty crazy if you think about it. That is 270-something, 271, I guess, as of today, episodes of this show, in-depth interviews with jazz musicians, plus coverage of festivals and all kinds of crazy things. All of it right there for free, anytime you want it, at thejazzsession.com. And you know, that puts me in mind, that word free, of uh, another word, which is the word pay. And pay is the act, the action, I would like you to take uh, in respect to the jazz session. You will still get the episodes for free, even if you don't become a member. Except that, at some point, that will cease to be true, because I'll no longer be able to afford to do it. So you need to become a member in order to ensure that the free stuff that you get keeps coming to you week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. And I'll stop extrapolating from there, even though it would be fun to see how far up we could get in you know demarcations of different periods of time. So the deal is, go to thejazzsession.com and become a member. You'll see it says join along the top, and it also says join along the side, and there's a handy PayPal button there. You can do it in monthly installments, so you can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month, and come on. For almost everybody listening to my voice right now, you can afford 10 bucks a month. You can go up from there, there's 25 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month. You can also do it in yearly installments, $110, $250, $500. Uh, we have one person at the $250 level, and more of those would be great. The thing is, at the two top levels, 50 bucks a month or $500 a month, you'll be mentioned on every single show as an official sponsor of the show. So if you have uh, a name that you'd like to get out there, possibly because it's interesting or unique or you just like to hear your name said every single show, which nothing wrong with that, I say my name every single show, then uh, please become a member at one of those higher levels and really help keep the show going. That would be absolutely lovely. You'd make, you'd make a little jazz podcaster's day, this one in particular. I'd like to thank uh, Bob Sharkey and also Matthew Kaminsky, who recently became members of the show, which is super cool. Thanks to both of them. And if you want to add your name to that list, just go to thejazzsession.com and join. Thanks. Speaking of thank yous, thanks to the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. They perform the theme music for this show, and more importantly, they perform great music uh, on a whole bunch of records, which you should check out, and they're all wonderful. And also thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo and who is on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Every once in a while, I try to give you a small peek behind the scenes of how the jazz session actually works. These days, now that I'm uh, living back in New York City again, it works by me generally going to the homes of the artists to record the interviews. People always seem, you know, more relaxed there. They're drinking out of their own tea mug and sitting in their own chair and what have you. So I tend to travel around and I hang out in various people's living rooms and kitchens and spare rooms and studios and all that kind of thing. And such was the case with uh, Cecil McBee, who is today's guest. And I, I bring along with me very little. I bring a backpack in which there are two microphones, microphone cables, headphones, and uh, Marantz. And this is uh, not an endorsement, although, oh, well, it is an endorsement because I love this, this piece of technology. It's not an official endorsement, but if they wanted to send me something, I'd be happy to have it. Uh, a Marantz PMD-660, which is a, a flash recorder. 
And I have taken this thing everywhere, to festivals, on hundreds and hundreds of interviews. I've done some field reporting with it back in my uh, pre-jazz radio days. And the thing is solid as a rock. It just always works. It always works great. And uh, it's, it's very handy. Commercial over. So I went to Cecil McBee's house. We're sitting at his, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of kitchen table-y table. And, you know, it's Cecil McBee, for God's sake. The guy's played with everybody. You know, he's one of the great bassists of all time. And I turn on my little Morantz deck, and in the window, it uh, always says loading, just for a second while it loads up the, uh, the flash uh, memory. And then it displays how much time is left. Except this time, it just says loading and loading and loading. So I'm trying to play it cool, and you know I'm sitting across from Cecil McBee, and it is quite obvious that nothing is happening with this machine. And so I turn it off, uh, say, you know, I'm just having just a just a spot of trouble here with the uh, with the recorder. Just hold on, just one second. And I take the batteries out, and think, you know. Just like the tech support would tell you to unplug the device and, you know, wait five minutes and plug it back in and the same problem will occur. So I take the batteries out, you know, wait, whatever it is, 10 seconds, which seems like an eternity, put the batteries back in. And normally, uh, it, it runs on electric power, but on this particular day, I have forgotten the plug. So I put the batteries back in, uh, turn it back on, loading, loading, loading. And not, you know, being a great reader of Einstein and therefore believing that you can do the same thing again and again and get a different result each time, I take the batteries out yet again, making some, you know, oh, just having just a little bit of technical problem here, Cecil, and uh, take them out, put them in, turn it on, loading, loading, loading. So at this point, I have no choice but to say to Cecil McBee, I don't know if I've added for God's sake, but Cecil McBee for God's sake, at this point, I have no choice but to say to him, so look, I've come all the way here to your house from my house, which is in a different borough, a, you know, a substantial distance away, and uh, I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to be able to actually record this interview because for the first time in 400 interviews, I can't actually seem to get this thing to work. So I'm just about to pack up all of my goodies when it occurs to me that maybe I can take out the memory card and just, you know, because the jazz gods like me for some reason, that will make it work. So I pop out the memory card, and just for good measure, pop out the batteries again, because, hey, why not, right? And uh, put them all back in, turn it on, and it works. And I'm able to record the interview. The only problem now is that, whereas before, turning on the Morantz deck for me was like saying hello to an old friend, because it just always, always, always worked. Uh, in this particular case, I am, I am now, I just have that little bit of, uh, the same feeling I get when I go to an ATM machine because I don't have any money. And you're always wondering whether actual cash will spit out toward you. Uh, I now have that feeling just for a second with the Morantz deck. And it has continued to work just fine. It's a great piece of technology. I would recommend it to anyone. Who knows, maybe it's operator error, and it could be the fact that I've never changed the memory card <laughs> despite all the thousands of times I have erased it and re-recorded things. Uh, so it's as likely to be my fault as anything else. But it was a bit of a scare, and now I get just that little rush of adrenaline, which I'm sure makes the interviews just that much better each time. So anyway, now that you've, you know that story and you can picture me covered in, you know, in sweat as my machine is not working and then trying to uh, nonchalantly sway into the interview, uh, let's hear some music from the cookers of whom Cecil McBee is a member, and then we'll hear from Cecil himself. 
My guest is the bassist and composer Cecil McBee, and uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mike. We were talking uh, just before we went on the air. We both uh, have something in common, which is uh, that we both are students of Japanese, and I used to live there, and you've traveled there many Mm -hmm. times over the years. I I wonder, do you find that um, being a musician has given you an additional facility with languages? Of course. We are experts at uh, realizing all... uh, all varied, if you will, definitions of tonal properties. The exterior, the uh, uh, the exterior properties, the inner properties, and those that should never even be there. We manufacture things uh, improvisationally, such that unusual uh, situations take place sound-wise. So we can hear around the corner, and even further. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I teach a lot, and I advocate. To my students, uh, those young folks, that is, who are going to travel the world, look, study a couple of languages because you have the capability beyond others because of your involvement with sound. And I usually recommend both Japanese and French. French is the language that uh, I've experienced myself when in Europe, if you're in a remote place where nobody speaks English, three out of five people will speak French. As a matter of fact, I was in Japan, when in Japan, I guess uh, seven, eight years ago, I performed there each and every year for the last 22 years with Yosuke Yamashita, pianist. And uh, we were uh, being sort of comforted, if you will, by a young lady who served us tea and condiments, if you will, uh, before entering the stage. And uh, I uh, spoke to her in English that I needed something, and she didn't speak English. So she says in Japanese, but I speak French. So we had a nice conversation in French. I speak not fluently, but we communicated. That's so that's, that's a wonderful moment as an example for, for folks, or students, you know, uh, alike that, uh, you know, they can not find themselves in such a handicapped position, such as, uh, please show me where to go, please show me what this is, take me here, because I don't know. Uh, And uh, if you look around you here in America, especially in New York, you have people from around the world here in this country, especially Asian folks who are speaking English better than we do for the most part. So I find it's a great advantage, not only uh, business, uh, for business purposes, but for understanding other cultures. Uh, certainly, and uh, I wonder it, in Japan in particular. I didn't expect to be asking these questions, but I didn't know about uh, our our shared uh, uh, sh- shared experience. Uh, what is it about that country that's caused you to go back every year for twenty two years? I mean, obviously performing with Yosuke, but there must be something deeper. Oh than that. well, um, there's a little, I'd say, romantic connection here. Uh, Some time back, I guess it's twenty two years ago. My mathematics. I'll try my mathematics in Japanese, and I certainly won't be accurate here. It was 22 <laughs> years ago. Um, I got a call from 
the agency of Yosuke Yamashita. In English, it's pronounced Yamashita. I mean, in Japanese, it's pronounced Yamashita. English is Yamashita. Sure. Sorry. And um, at the time, I didn't want to go to Japan. You know, I just didn't feel like taking such a long trip. And the guy says, Mr. McBee, we heard about your music, and we'd love you to participate with Elvin Jones on drums and uh, Yamashita on piano on the island of Sado, which is uh, sort of uh, located sort of a 45-minute jet foil ride off the coast of the northwestern coast of Japan. And I, he said, uh, call me back and let me know what you think about it. So I told my wife, I said, look, I don't want to go. So uh, I'll charge this guy, an, a, a, you know, an, an, an unusually high fee, and uh, he'll go away. You know, because I, I didn't feel like traveling that far. I'd just gotten off the road and things like that. So he called back the next day, and I said, give me this amount of money. He said, oh, no problem, Mr. McBee. He says, uh, you know, then I thought I should have asked for more. <laughs> right. So I made a lot of money, and it was a single trip. We arrived in Tokyo, and then we took uh, a two-hour bullet train ride to the coast, and we took the four-hour ride to the island. And what I mean by romantic was that it was just amazing. You know, for the first time, I experienced real, authentic Japanese culture. The island is way away from the mainland, and everything is very, you know, 2,000 years old there, you know. Uh, you know, the, the the habitats were authentic Japanese. Uh, you were served masterfully by people uh, that honored you and, and respected you through your respect and honor of them with the quality of the best. And then uh, I remember uh, when we did finally perform on a in a wonderful place outside where there were about 5,000 people with Elvin and, y and uh, Yosuke. It was just amazing. So uh, the the travel, and then the final moment of uh, bliss that I experienced just really connected me to Japan. And in so far as learning to speak the language, oh, you know, by the way, uh, after that, Yosuke called and said, look, we've got to form a trio, which would include Pharaoh Naklov. So that was 22 years ago, and after about, uh, after about, I'd say about nine years, and having been there each and every year, and uh, experiencing local friends and Japanese increasingly speaking English, why not take the opportunity to, to, to get involved in the language, which I've done very well. I've studied it for about five years now. And uh, so that's been a wonderful thing. However, you might, uh, I'm going to throw this in here. There's a company called the Delica Corporation in Japan. Have you heard about that? Mm -hmm. That has been using my name to sell clothes without my permission to young girls between 16 and 25 for the last 22 years. And I have been unable to do anything about it because I lost the case about three years ago. And uh, so there's, there, I understand, last I heard, two years ago, there were 43 shops all over the country. Cecil McBee shops. So that's not romantic. Nevertheless, life goes on.
the reason that I end, ended up being here uh, in your home is because of this uh, band, The Cookers, who now have two records out. And mm-hmm. uh, I've so far spoken with uh, Billy Harper and with George Cables, and after you will be talking with the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. And one uh, theme that has come through talking with Billy Harper and George Cables is the uh, the ongoing cohesion of the band, the fact that it has gone from... Uh, you know what you might term an all-star ensemble a bunch of very veteran musicians who are all leaders and composers in their own right to really feeling like a band in its own right a, a band with its own distinct identity and I, I wonder about your feedback on that your impression of that oh most certainly uh, I would agree the fact of the matter is uh, with the reason to be being that we're, you're all individually there to express a dynamic a very dynamic, varied dynamics of oneself through uh, music for purposes of communicating at the highest level, which which provides relief uh, 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 by the individual, him or herself. Uh, when you're together that long, which has been about six years now, and you've traveled most of the world, you become a family, and you begin to hear and feel understand and uh, communicate at the levels that are necessary for the music to uh, find its place, how do you say, in areas of the unexpected. Simply playing, simply performing is one thing, but finding yourself in a place through the courage collectively to arrive into areas that are unexpected can be where qualities of music can be found that uh, uh, will be should be, given the, the, the collective qualities of talent, should be unusual and uh, highly creative. And that's what we've discovered this band. We are capable of going anywhere and finding high levels of creativity, uh, individually and collectively, uh, apart from the unusual or the usual expectation of this phrase or that phrase or this melody. George, Billy Hart, and myself, and the others, of course, are amazing people. But I, unusually here, I, I pronounce the rhythm section. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, these, we are all three being very, very uh, strong veteran musicians can take that music anywhere given the individual purposes of each horn player up front. When Billy finishes playing, we'll change and go right to Eddie. 
and B, find ourselves in an entirely different environment, yet connected to the purposes of the tune, or out there in the spaces of no man's land. It, it happens all over the place. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Is that a factor of a, an evolving, tra- developing trust between the musicians, or is it purely a factor of the experience? Oh, yeah. Experience? Trust, you have to, you know... Uh, it's trust because, basically, improvised music is about adding something to a given situation. That is, you have a C minor chord, chord, and you might not be comfortable with the sound of the chord. You might want to add a nine, or flat something, or raise something. Or it's about uh, taking something away from a given situation. You might want to remove the five, or, or it's about leaving it alone entirely. See, And this is done at the spur of the moment, for the most part. Um, now, for these cre- creative purposes to find themselves fashionable, if you will, or acceptable, uh, you have to place them in between the, 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 the phrases, the notes, the periods, the, 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 the spaces, the environments between the dynamic placement of the notes is where this takes place. And this is where the trust comes in. Because as you leave one situation, for purposes of arriving at another situation, collectively, if that's understood, then it can be wonderful. And it usually is. But for the most, a lot of the times, now that you've uh, uh, departed from one space, headed for another, sometimes you might want to not arrive there and go someplace else. (laughs) And this is what we do excellently. And uh, when you find yourself at a place that's unexpected like that, then for me, absolutely wonderful, because you can always discover things that are unusual, uh, given contrast to, or mirroring uh, usual things. You know, so the ballads too are wonderful. This group is quite capable of that. You used the word family to describe the band earlier, and one way in which I could imagine this band being different from a family is that families often operate with a fairly fixed hierarchy, and this sounds more like a collective enterprise, but maybe it's not. You can correct me. Well, well we, 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 we're a family of musicians, if you will, that get along very well. You know, there's always fun. There's always uh, joy in travel, even at the worst moments at airports or whatever, even during moments on the stage that aren't so favorable. <laughs> <laughs> and I know a lot about it. It's not always magic, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it, if, you know, if, if, if if one element in the band uh, uh, demonstrates or manifests, if you will, a bit of uh, uncertainty or contrariness, then it can be seriously large, seriously large. And we don't have that at all, period. So that trust, that joy provides trust. And you can, you know, if I goof, somebody's going to cover me, <laughs> you know. And uh, if, if, if I miss the dunk... Somebody's going to hit a three-point play, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I love playing with this group. Plus, uh, quite honestly, over the years, I've done my best to realize, to be realized as a composer over the world at large uh, in that I've performed with just about everybody. And uh, this is something that's just now beginning to, to find uh, uh, its place. Uh, uh, through this group and uh, 
also with another group uh, that I've been playing with. But anyway, uh, I've never heard my music. I, I've rarely heard my compositions played at this level. Uh, from time to time uh, at the conservatory, the, the New England Conservatory where I teach uh, uh, students, I have two ensembles and students are required to play a lot of my compositions and they play very well. But by contrast, with the cookers playing the tunes, it's amazing. I mean, seasoned musicians, I'm finally beginning to hear my music at the level uh, and of expression and integrity that I've, I've intended, and it's just wonderful. You know, I've got, what's that, Peacemaker and Euphoria, Close to You Alone, and uh, Ladybug. You know, they all are, you know, really Cecil McBee tunes that are, for the most part, more or less... I say harmonically related to uh, usual expected chord progressions, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, there's a lot of other stuff that I've, uh, music that I've composed that are just totally out to lunch, which I prefer. <laughs> so I like living on the edge and right near the edge for the most part in my uh, uh, creativity compositionally at the piano. When you play your compositions uh, with the cookers or with any uh, with your other ensemble, how much freedom do you give the players uh, in terms of everything from the parts they play in the non-improvised sections uh, to during the improvisation? Oh my God, that's a rather uh, uh, how do you say uh, loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because. My music is based on you having as much freedom as you want, be it uh, more, uh, uh, how do you say, explorative types of music or stuff that's right right inside. Do your thing. Because you're in the process of adding and taking things away given the immediate concept that I provide, which I think is usual, unusual to my concept uh, as one who has determined over the years to be Cecil McBee, the composer. Uh, I've, I've distinctly, uh, I've, how do you say, uh, I've been determined over, over these years to be an individual, uh, not for, uh, any, how do you say, uh, selfish reason or anything like that, but uh, the ideal, the ideal is that if I can compose music that would reflect or be who I truly am as an individual, then that's me that's expressing who I want to express. If there are too many elements that are inspired too much by others, then I'm not 
wholly myself. Although I cannot say that I'm writing music and composing without uh, the ingredients of Paul Chambers or Bill Evans or, or Count Basie or Train, anybody. I mean, they're all there for the most part. But now, at this point in my life, I've understood theory and harmony well enough to be able to avoid and evade so much of my inspirational geniuses previous to this time that I uh, uh, have uniquely found my own voice to the extent that I can express almost entirely what I wish to say as a composer. And that way I can find, as I said before, relief of expression uh, that would uh, lend into the next period or towards the next period of discovering other relief uh, by finding other compositions. As a matter of fact, I'm, uh, I'm working on three comp new compositions right now. Uh, one called A Feeling, the other is Agua Dulce, and uh, the other is Temptations, that's with an S. So they will reflect who I have been over the past year as composer, as artist. And also, the, 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 uh, the, the wonderful, use the word temptation, or the word expectation, the wonderfulness of it is that these compositions now being found uh, on paper off the piano tells me that I'm indeed very, very well prepared to become the band leader I've wanted to be all these years with my own ori original compositions. And uh, the, the uh, excitement of it is is that I've never really had the opportunity to play my bass with an environment of my music like Mingus did. And I guess instinctively, although I don't have that opportunity now and it doesn't seem to come my way, I'm, uh, I seem to be preparing myself and I'm quite ready to uh, play Cecil McBee in the environment of Cecil McBee's compositions, which I think I can really have myself a good time. And I think people will probably hear and appreciate me more uh, than I really feel truly that uh, more than what they appreciated me uh, musically in terms of my talent before. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about that. It seems to me that to avoid the uh, explicit influence of the people who you, you've listened to over the years, you have to be fairly critical about your own compositions. You really have to listen and say, this is me and this is not me. This sounds too derivative. Is that a skill you've developed over the years? Something? Uh, you... Well, here, here's what it is. There's no way. I mean, I, Paul Chambers, Ray Brown, Richard Davis have been my greatest influences, Richard Davis being the more contemporary uh, uh, creator. I mean, there's no way I can play the bass now without those influences being a part of all that energy. And, but, and I, of course, I mean, every musician can say that, 
you know, there's no way you can be that much of an individual. That's not exactly what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm determined uh, to be the individual that I know that I can be by the treatment of the tones and the music that I create. That is, remember I said, how you arrive at a situation, the distance between uh, tones and between beats is where you can fashion the individuality. And uh, so arriving from a situation to a situation departing is where the individuality takes place. And uh, in the interim, what I do is I think I'm very, very good at fashioning the tones that is raising and lowering tones for my purposes. If you think about it, for the most part, the blues fashions, if I can use that word again, mostly tones that are lowered. The third is lowered in, in conjunction with the major third. The five is lowered. The seven is lowered. And how they are lowered and when they are lowered will determine the creative aspect. For the most part, I like raising tones or leaving them like they are in terms of the movement from situation to situation. I find raising the tones a bit more, and you can still get a haunting, uh, bluesy or expressionistic kind of style that will touch the heart and soul from that perspective. You know, so it's how you handle the tones. It's the treatment of the tones in conjunction with the rhythm that is now fueling everything. See, so, uh, but nevertheless, behind all of that, of course, is uh, large packages of influence by the greatest <laughs> musicians, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, that inspired me over the years. Sure. Does that make any sense? It certainly yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm interested in, it, you can say that now and be very clear about your vision of your own approach to playing the bass. Yeah. I guess what's interesting to me is at what point in your musical career, when did you start being able to say that? This is who I am as Cecil McBee. This is how... This is how my approach to the bass is individual to me. I've always done that. Uh, I arrived in New York City. Uh, you know, I'm only about 23 years old. Right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Even younger than I am, yeah. <laughs> I arrived in New York City in 1964. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, by 1965, I had begun to write. As a matter of fact, I remember I... Fortunately, found myself on the Lower East Side on 10th Street between B and C with a piano there uh, that a buddy of mine from college left to me. He went to California. Uh, his name was Calvin Sturgis, pianist that uh, did other things. And uh, I began composing then because I was just out of college. And I, uh, I'm just, just, you know, uh, I'd like to say gently or carefully that I was a pretty good, I was triple A student theory and harmony in college. I mean, I was a very good, uh, I had a very good understanding of what that was about. So I began writing. And, <clears throat> and uh, let me see, one of the tunes that we played that was recorded on the uh, Cooker's album, Close to You Alone, was recorded at that particular time, was written at that particular time. Just now, 99 years <laughs> later, getting recorded for the most part. But uh, you're a patient man. Excuse me. You're a patient man. Apparently. Oh no! Oh <laughs> no! No! no. I've, 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 I've punched through a couple of walls every now and then, as long as I didn't bang my head. Right. You know. But uh, the the major point is later on after I had performed with Wayne Shorter for some period of time, 
I also performed with Miles briefly. Um, I found myself with Charles Lloyd, the Charles Lloyd Quartet with Keith, Jared, Jack, and myself and Charles Lloyd. At a rehearsal, Charles said, hey, man, we're going to do this thing, you know, and uh, we don't have enough music, so I happen to have uh, a couple of my compositions in my bass bag. So I pulled out Song of Her, and it was uh, accepted immediately. Charles loved it. And uh, so it was a tune that had very, very little to do with 2-5 chord progressions. I'm one who can uh, utilize uh, various colors of tones uh, or chords and, again, fashion them as they would cross over the bar line into another environment without the use of the 2-5 progression, which usually is the popular, popular way to go or the more reasonable way to go, if you will. <laughs> and so this tune had a lot to do with uh, 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 varying tonalities placed in the bass that ordinarily would be in the melody, etc. So Charles loved it immediately, and uh, we played it uh, a lot over Europe when this band became extremely popular over there, only for it to be recorded at the Monterey Jazz Festival on the album uh, Forest Flower on the second side, Song of Her. That was my very first uh, recording of one of my compositions, and this was in 1966. My very first recording, and the very first one was recorded. And Close to You Alone came a little later. But uh, from then on, I was writing, I've been writing and writing and writing, right? Now, my first album took place under, was created uh, under the uh, head of Strata East Records. It was called Mutima. And have you ever heard that? You know, mm -hmm. You've heard that? Well, this was like one that I just pulled out all the stops. I, you know, D.D. Bridgewater, I had 90, all my buddies, everybody. We just, <laughs> 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 it was really compositionally uh, oriented, which I, I think was, uh, how do you say, rather masterful in its own way, but in f so far as providing uh, a lot of those freedoms. It didn't have it. You know, <laughs> it was my initial phase, you know, so uh, I learned from that. But then uh, later on, Alternate Spaces came about, which was created under the uh, production of uh, Bob Cummins of Indian Navigation. Now, Alternate Spaces, to this day, is one of my favorite albums that uh, uh, provided for me a wiser and more broader uh, way of exhibiting who I am, not only as a bass player, but as a composer. And uh, it's to this day has just recently, the last couple of years, people are saying, "Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, it's wonderful." And this is happening. I'll get that in 1973, and uh, it's now supposed to be contemporary, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, uh, turns out, a couple of very reputable uh, uh, magazines who had the st strong voice of crit criticisms, or, or how do you say, critique. Uh, uh, really put the record down. You know, they didn't like it because it was too far out. Too far out. It didn't provide for them uh, expect, expected things that would comfort them and so forth, their knowledgeability about what was going on. That is, I was on the outside of it trying to be Cecil McBee. And that's just, just now becoming to be, uh, thank God, a reality that, uh, 
people are beginning to hear my music now. And uh, like I said, with the cookers, it, it just recently recorded four of my tunes. And so, uh, and I was at the Jazz Standard just last year where I just had a great time immersed in my music and people turned out like crazy. Uh, I didn't know Cecil McBee was a band leader. I didn't know he wrote music, etc. So that's beginning to be realized, and I'm uh, I'm very very excited about that. So I guess one of the things I I'm hearing you say is that your conception of of who you are as a writer and a player was, if not fixed, at least developed fairly early in your career. Absolutely, and that it's been more a case of. Uh, a long road to recognition rather than only just now arriving at the thing for which you're being recognized. Absolutely, because from the beginning, if we want to go back to when I first arrived in New York City, I was one who... Uh, I was not satisfied with my ability now to, uh, for technical purposes, to, to play with just two fingers on the right hand, pizzicato-wise. Uh, that was relatively fresh and new, I'd say, since the mid-50s. Uh, and uh, What had been done before that? What was the well, standard practice uh, at that time? Usually, well, before uh, Jimmy Blanton, that was the slap bass. Right. Jimmy Blanton came along and, and brought out not only an approach to contemporary soloing, but to... Uh, uh, with one finger swinging and playing fat, uh, choice where the, uh, uh, tones, quarter notes, uh, quarter tones, if you will, uh, that gave a sense to, uh, swing that had never been heard before. And, uh, then Ray Brown came along and played so amazingly fast past Blanton with one finger. Uh, that it was amazing. But then Mingus played with two fingers. And, uh, and, uh, the, the, uh, the more the fingers, the more capability and the more probabilities on the instrument, if you know the instrument well. So I decided that I would try a third finger, uh, add another third capability, possibility. And so I was busy practicing those elements, those things in the early, mid sixties and, you know, and uh, so when you heard me play, you heard a lot of that and uh, opposite what was expected, like certain things that were commonly played. I was experimenting with trying to be myself on the instrument. And to this day, uh, I'm because of having, for instance, I did an album with uh, my second album. No, my first, not my second album in New York City was with Gratian Monker, the third. The first with, was with Denny Zeitlin. And Freddie Waits. Denny Zeitlin was a forethinker of, uh, in a similar fashion that I would, uh, uh, find, you know, purposes for create, creativity. Um, and, uh, the album was called Catexas. And it was really, the music was absolutely amazing. Uh, Gratian Monker heard me practicing one day, my trying to Im include this third finger on my right hand that would coordinate with the third finger on my left hand. Were you practicing it, because your window was open? or I mean, how did that... Well, lived in the same building? Or? I was on uh, 3rd Street, my first habitat in New York City, uh, mm -hmm. between Lafayette and Broadway. Uh, 
being, uh, how do you say, given uh, uh, a place to uh, rent by Nat Jones, the pianist at the time. And uh, I was practicing about, about this time of the day, about 2.30 afternoon. And uh, Nat Jones, the pianist who lived, whose habitat was at the other end of the loft, uh, answered the door. And uh, I heard people talking, and uh, then there was quiet after about 15 minutes because they had kind of interrupted, you know, kind of distracted my playing. Then after about 20 minutes, somebody knocked on the door. And uh, I opened the door, and it was Gratian Moncur, trombone player. Gratian said, pardon me, you know, Nat told me who you were, and I'd heard about you. He says, you know, I, if, you, if you don't mind, I, I was standing outside listening to you practicing. And he said, man, I really like what you're doing. He says, are you available for a recording next week? Uh, I said, uh, sure. So uh, we met at Lynn Oliver's studio. This is, I think, on 87th Street. This was the studio where all Blue Note artists would rehearse and then get in a taxi and go across the river and, and record. And uh, so upon entering, I was relatively blown away because guess who was there? Herbie Hancock, Tony Williams, and Wayne Shorter. And I said, oh, I said, oh, my God, what an exciting thing, you know, because the, I was a great fan of these guys. And, and uh, I looked forward to an exciting thing, but a little nervous because I just got in New York. I didn't know what Gratian wanted of me. So we began rehearsing and, and I said, uh, uh, there was no music. And I said, wait a minute. I said, Gratian, I said, what should I do? He said, just play that stuff I heard you playing when you practiced. Just play your fingers like that. <laughs> so I did that all during the whole recording. I just practiced. And uh, it was like the record, the album was called Some Other Stuff, right? So it was more or less a freestyle thing. So my major point is, ever since I made that album, I've been considered a free bass player. <laughs> you know, I heard this guy, remember, he plays, he plays this way. But then... Subsequently, when I was with Wayne for that period of time, and uh, Jackie McLean, and uh, also with Charles Lloyd, and uh, that just kind of quelled that myth that, uh, you know, because I was, quite honestly, I was having a great time playing, and I had a very, very good, uh, not only uh, understanding of the instrument, but capability of doing what I felt was necessary on uh, the stage, and just had a wonderful time. And it sounds like you just wanted to be you, not... Not you, the free player, you, the straight-ahead player. Well, I wanted me to be somebody that can play almost anything. Sure. You know, I can play this, and I can, that's who I am right now. That's how I've survived over these years. Put it before me, and I can play it. You know, I'm not the expert with the bow yet, but uh, I feel that, uh, you know, if you look at the extent of my records, you'll see that I've played with everybody almost anything for the most part. So that's that's what I feel very, very proud of. I'm not one thing. I'm for the most part, all things. I'm not the greatest expert. I'm not the greatest bass player in the world, but I'm someone who expresses himself with needs to express himself to the best that I can. That's who I am.
uh, you mentioned earlier, I think in the interview, maybe it was before we were recording, uh, teaching at New England Conservatory. And this is a question I fairly regularly ask people who are also teachers, which, uh, which is what you see as the the role of the academy nowadays in the in the modern jazz scene, the, the current jazz scene. Oh, that's a very, very good question. When ever I'm on the stage, especially abroad, and am experiencing people of all ages, of all cultures, just overwhelmed with our music. It's just a wonderful, wonderful privilege every time to, to be received and respected like that just by the qualities of my expression individually and in our collective. It's a wonderful thing. So with uh, a great, 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 I'd say, concern now of directions of young folks who seem to be uh, sometimes, in my opinion, a bit distracted, if not lost, from uh, by uh, whatever social qualities that are provided for them. Uh, by lost, I mean distracted from uh, the uh, past, you know, to the extent that, oh, do we know where we're going? And the music is, is very much a part of that. Uh, this country has provided some of the, you know, equal to classical music uh, through this music, uh, the jazz music, uh, it's provided, uh, you know, uh, expressions that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. And so at the conservatory, I try to exemplify uh, through my personality, my demeanor, my teachings, that this is where it's going and you should or could be a part of it by who you are in terms of your discipline. And if you open yourself, open your mind into the, uh, uh, and also, uh, give me the opportunity to perhaps help you, help direct you, direct you through my abilities. Perhaps I can help take you there. And uh, in a collective fashion, I'm very proud that I can be a part of someone 50 years from now or whatever that I've inspired that will help keep the music going. For instance, right now, I was just telling my wife the other night, just last night, how proud I am at the conservatory. For the, I've been there 22 years, almost the same time I went with the Yosuke to Japan. Uh, I've got five young bass players that are soon to be realized. I'm, I've been there 22 years, and this is the first time, I mean, I've seen such talent. I mean, these kids are really playing very, very well. And I've had a lot to do with it, not all, but a lot to do with it. I mean, i got two guys now that uh, one guy began studying with me uh, his name is Zuelaki Belleper. Uh, he began studying with me about four years ago. Uh, just from scratch. Knew very little about uh, the di discipline and the characters of his left hand, which, pro which provide tones in coordination with the right hand, etc., etc. This man is, he's just about to graduate this uh, May, and he can't stay in school because he's so busy traveling and playing performances everywhere. You know, and a couple of other guys that are emerging now. So I'm just so proud to know that I have signatured in part who they are. And that's my purpose, to perhaps uh, uh, tell America that, look, I've given my part, I've contributed to my society from that perspective, not only by my teachings, but by my performances, and uh, et cetera, et cetera.
thing you can do for your students that many faculty members can't do is provide them with a living connection to an incredible wealth of music because you yourself have been as you said on records or on the stage with just about everybody yeah Uh, do you feel that that's part of your role to to connect them in a in a real way in a in a present meaningful way to the body of the music of course of course like i said i've played all kinds of music and that's the way i teach I teach you how to teach yourself. I don't give you specific things to play uh, for creative purposes. I teach you, I give you various uh, disciplines that will provide for you an open creative mind that uh, will give you choices, uh, possibilities of making your own choices to find your own signature like I've studied myself. And that comes from, I mean, born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, First, when I was was at seven and a half, eight years of age, uh, I ended up being taken care of by my grandmother, uh, who was, I mean, just the the most religious person that you ever met. She she walked around like I would walk around with my real book. She walked around with her Bible, and uh, I had to give speeches in church every Sunday. I had to. uh, listen to her sermons almost every day. Uh, what am I saying here? I went all the way back. Uh, you ask I, I was asking you about connecting your students to the kind of entire body of the music, and oh, yeah. you were saying that you yeah. teach them how to learn, yeah. teach them how to find themselves. What I'm saying is, I it, it all started with uh, you know my connection with the spirit of the church of the neighborhood, which was basically Tulsa, Oklahoma, was all about religion for the most part, uh, where I uh, eventually found myself the only bass player in that city when I was 17 years of age that uh, began playing in clubs where I uh, was provided with various techniques of playing the blues, sort of boogie-woogie at the time. And uh, so from the church through that and then entering school where I studied theory and harmony and I uh, began to know about Charlie Parker and Bird and I mean Bird <laughs> I guess Charlie Parker's Bird's brother right? yeah <laughs> <laughs> and all the masters and uh, Art Pepper and uh, and uh, et cetera et cetera you know things gradually increased uh, you know that is uh, from the blues to uh, bebop post bebop to playing with 
Gratian, and then Wayne, and then Charles Lord, and then later on, uh, Yusuf Latif, Alice Coltrane, etc., etc. You see the lineage, right? Yeah. So I try to embody those things in my, you know, I try to provide for my students all of that. Because if there's something in need, uh, uh, given the momentary instruction, I can always reach into one of those areas and find something to provide information for developmental purposes of these this person. I like that you said you see your main role as teaching students how to learn, how to study, how to find themselves, because it seems like that uh, learning learning how to reason, learning how to think critically, learning how to investigate yeah. is as important as anything they'll ever learn right, how to do what's going in to music or anything else. Yeah, that's what's going to happen on the stage. See, the, the uncertainties are more prevalent than what you, for the most part, prepared for, especially given improvisation. Like I said, the spaces between arrivals and departures, those are the uncertainties. Can you master that? Can you feel comfortable in those areas? So if the student has a good handle on that, an understanding of what that is, my God, you know, it's, it's just wonderful. And I've begun to hear it with uh, a lot of my students. Even, you know, I teach not just bass players, but all instruments. I uh, do have a, a degree in music education, and uh, like I said, I was a pretty good student. So, um, I, uh, and so far as being a teacher, uh, I was, I was uh, upon graduating from Central State University in Ohio. I was asked, you had to uh, do three months of what you call practice teaching. And uh, I did that in Cincinnati, and at the conclusion of that bit of time, I was almost, I was really, really inspired to know that the entire organization of that school and that system wanted me to stay there and become the head uh, uh, man musically of, it was called Bloom Junior High School, that would provide, that would prepare students for high school on into college. But I said, no, by that time I had gotten to play my bass, and I wanted to go to New York. But... Uh, the point is, I had the ability, uh, signature by them, as a pretty good teacher that uh, knew, uh, you know, uh, that could fashion the right, uh, mostly, uh, information that would be helpful to these kids. Do you feel any sense of responsibility to teach, in addition to whatever it might be financially or just enjoying it? Do you feel any kind of moral imperative or societal imperative to, to be of part course. of the next generation? Of course, those who have been fortunate, like myself, that have seen most of the world that has been reasonably successful on stage and off stage and so forth, relating to folks. Uh, uh, well, I can recall some points where I wasn't. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, one phrase that I maintain relatively that uh, I got from Chico Freeman, uh, saxophone player, Chico would say at all times when we were hanging buddies, he said, each one, teach one. Right. So when you find, when you have the opportunity to teach a kid or somebody who is open and ready, you must, you have a responsibility to take advantage of the moment and provide some uh, clarity or opening uh, to to those that might be needy, however they might not even be aware of it, and that's what I do, regardless of what it is. Outside of music, I'm always uh, vocal in terms of uh, what uh, you know, how I can assist somebody. Because it happened to me. I uh, 
uh, in high school. I, my senior year, I could not wait to get out. I was really a, not a good student. I, uh, I didn't study. I didn't concentrate. There was no musical classes there, but I was a very good clarinetist in the school. That was my thing, playing the clarinet. That was popular made Cecil make me popular in somebody. So you and your sister, is that right? Were you me and my studies? sister, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so now that I've graduated and I'm ready to go hang out with my buddy James and we had his brother's car and we would dress ourselves up, we were going to go out and, you know, have a good time for the rest of our lives. No idea of furthering my education. But one evening I was sitting, you see that house there on the wall? That's yes. where I used to live, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was absolutely just total shambles. It was one of the worst, most poverty-stricken places. Five children, stepfather, single parent. There was very little of anything. Right? Just, just forget it. But a uh, loving mother who you just didn't get past anything. You know, she... It's lots of love and lots of discipline, et cetera, et cetera. One evening, I was sitting and talking with her uh, just after, at dusk, and somebody knocked on the door. It happened to be my band leader, uh, high school band leader, Mr. Clarence Fields. And uh, this has to do with me helping other folks, okay? Sure. I, upon answering the door, I said, Mr. Fields, I said, what, Why? You know, because he hadn't told me that he was going to come to visit us. And uh, he said, uh, I'm here to see your mother. I said, oh, okay. So I said, Mom, uh, Mr. Fields. And he had a very stern look on his face. He said, Mrs. McBee, he says, we've never met. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate because uh, I said, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry for you know coming in unannounced. He said, but we haven't met and uh, you've. I've never seen you at any parent-teacher meetings, or you have not participated. He was very gentle about it in, in uh, parent-student affairs. He said, but uh, I'm sorry to interfere with your life and your family. He says, but, and he became, his voice became very stern. He said, I'm sorry to interfere with your family here. He says, but I have provided a full scholarship to Central State University for Cecil and he says, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. And he took me by my right arm, pulled me outside, and he said, boy, and, and this, uh, you know, I didn't have a father, you know, except my stepfather, was, which was another thing. He looked at me in my eyes, as very stern. He said, boy, get your ass in school now. He says, I've got a ticket for you Monday at the Santa Fe train station. I want to see you there. So I put that bass that I had begun to play a year before in cardboard boxes, got it on the train, and went to college. And I haven't been back to Tulsa. That's where I come from. Finally, let me ask you, uh, is there uh, a, a book you've read recently or a film you've seen or something you've heard or a play you've gone to see, anything you'd like to recommend to other people, something not directly connected to your own work and it doesn't have to be jazz-related at all, just something you want to share with other people that you've enjoyed? Hmm. No, but I would, two things. Um, I've taken 
the opportunity over the last 15 years to compose a uh, series of three books called The Anthology of String-Based Improvisation. Uh, it's a teaching method that uh, is just coming to conclusion. That is, the last chapter is about using the third finger. <laughs> <laughs> and it will, be, it, it will be soon realized, hopefully, as one that should be on all shelves of musical institutions. Because, for instance, you, as the trumpet player or trombone player, will be able to teach out of it. it uh, I've worked on it for 15 years. As a teacher, composer, and artist, I fashion the book, and I'm very, very proud of it. Once it comes out, and this is not a sell or anything like this. Just this is my contribution, uh, uh, with the, with the thinking that I should uh, provide something through my experiences in documented form that will help others. Um, the other thing is that uh, if uh, I would advise folks of all ages that do what I do musically, I would say study the languages. Uh, Japanese is a very, very difficult language to learn, but I've begun to master the form, and also uh, French. I've got a better handle on that, so for purposes of communicating with the world at large. And also, uh, you know, Spanish is. You know. So languages and that book and otherwise, uh, I'm not one that goes to the movies a lot. Uh, you know, I'm always spending most of my time in language books. You know, German, French, Spanish, and Japanese, and I speak very little English. <laughs> Well, uh, on that note, I will say Domo arigatou gozaimashita, and my guest is Cecil McBee. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Doitashimashite. Matane. Matane.
That is music from The Cookers featuring Cecil McBee. Such a pleasure to talk to Cecil and uh, thank him for being on the show. This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is at TheJazzSession.com, and I urge you, I, I couldn't urge you more than I'm urging you right now, except possibly to come directly to your home and plead with you in person to become a member. I'm looking to get 100 members by the 300th show in order to keep this enterprise going. Uh, it's been going for four years, more than 1.1 million downloads, and I couldn't be happier about that except if it were some, in some tiny way financially self-sustaining. That's the only thing that can make me happier than I am now. So please do become a member and make my little dream come true. And then go out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.